Uh, friends, let me invite you now to turn to the 47th chapter of Genesis. We're in the middle and really towards the end of our time with Joseph and Jacob and all the rest. We've been here for quite some time uh, in Genesis. We've been with Abraham, we've been with Isaac, and now with Jacob and Joseph. We come uh, to uh, moving day, moving day, really, uh, in uh, the time of Israel. They moved down to Egypt last time. And now what's going to happen? What's going to happen with these people? And what's going to happen with uh, Joseph? We'll read uh, beginning in verse 13 all the way through verse uh, 31 of uh, Genesis chapter 47. Let me remind you again, this is Moses' word. This is God's word. It's holy. It's living. It's active. It's good for you. That's good for us. Let's come now and hear by faith from our Lord. We're told, beginning in verse 13, that now there was no food in all the land. For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die in front of your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock. And I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we're not hide from our Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die in front of your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be slaves to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived in the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, look, I have this day bought you and your land of Pharaoh. Now, here's seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please our Lord, we will be slaves to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Israel said, swear to me. And he swore to him. 
Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This word, the word of our God, does neither, but it endures forever. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching and the hearing and the trusting and the loving of his word. Father, we come to you as children. We come to you as children, compelled by your grace. Show us what your blessing and your service look like. For the sake of Christ, our Savior, we ask this. Amen. It was a month like this, I think. Oh, maybe 18 years ago, something like that. Many years ago, whatever. I was in Louisiana. I was a little child. I was maybe fourth grade, fifth grade. At most, it was cold. I remember this because I had to wear a coat. And we had this kind of uh, field trip we went on. I'm sure you do it these days if you go to schools. Uh, we went to that, down to the Baton Rouge Symphony. And they had some early morning thing that they do for the young kids. And they, uh, they played a little uh, symphony, a little, little uh, enjoyable thing to, to help us learn a little bit about classical music. And I guess it sort of took. I don't listen that much, but I enjoy it from time to time. It was... Um, this is what you do with the kids, I think. You, you pick this one out. It's really good. It was uh, 1930s, I believe, uh, Russian symphony, Peter and the Wolf by Prokofiev. Peter and the Wolf is very famous because it's, it's great for kids because each instrument is a character. Each instrument represents the, you know, the, the clarinet, the cat. You know, I think the ducks, the oboe, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, and the grandfather is the bassoon, and you can recognize instruments, you can begin to learn something about how every instrument pulls together in an orchestra, and they, they work and all that sort of thing. That's wonderful. That's great. It, it, like I said, it uh, took a little bit. I, I enjoy music from time to time, classical music. But, um, you know, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is kind of like Peter and the Wolf. And that there are kind of big themes in the Bible that you hear. And there are certain instruments that play over and over again, and you get used to them. And in our modern day, we have a couple of those that we really love. If I had to ask you, what is the key theme, one of the most beautiful themes that you see in the Bible, I can almost guarantee you that you will pick either one of two options because you're a Western 21st century American person. Almost guarantee that you will pick, if you had to choose, one of the great themes of the Bible, you will pick either family, which we call being a son of God, adoption, or you will pick marriage. Sons of God, bride of Christ, almost to a T. If we are asked the first thing that comes into our minds, we love those themes. We don't pick vineyard. We don't pick temple. We don't pick uh, city. We're not the Puritans. That's what they liked. City on a hill. We pick personal, relational, family themes. We like families, we like marriage. It's what, it's what our society loves to, to have a beautiful wedding. That's what the TV shows are all about. Those are the big themes. But kind of like Peter and the Wolf, there are certain themes and certain characters and certain instruments that are the minor themes that we sideline. We come this morning to two sideline themes. We come this morning to two themes that we're kind of deaf to. You know, you hear the bassoon. You may not hear that cello that's kind of off the cuff in the background. You may not hear the woodwind, you know, uh, that, that's there. But we come right here to two themes in Scripture that we have a really hard time getting our hands on. Really challenging time. 
Either we mishear them or we don't want to talk about them at all. What are they? Well, I suppose you have a clue even in the title here. One of them's bitter and one of them's sweet. One of them's bitter and one of them's sweet. We're doing it in that order, I suppose. We'll hit the bitter one first. We'll hit the sweet one next. And if you want the actual points, I'll give them away right now. We're going to hit the S word and the B word. The S word and the B word. The S word. Slavery. The B word. Blessing. Now I can almost guarantee you that when I mention slavery, you're, you're, you're primed and you're ready to have a step back. You're fine. You're ready. And I can almost guarantee that at some point, like me, there will be some level of offense in this, this sermon. I don't usually aim to do that. But because of our cultural situation, because of our history, we'll have to look and see what uh, what the S word actually means in uh, in 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 this uh, this text. It's impossible on a Sunday morning to discuss something like slavery and something like this story with anything approaching detachment. But we have to try because the Bible says, look, here's ancient Egypt. Here's economic policy by a guy named Joseph in these, you know, uh, 18 verses. And somehow, for some reason, God put this in the Bible to benefit Christians in 2023. Now, the very easy thing to do, and this is what most pastors do, the very easy thing to do, this is what most commentators do, is to do one of two options. Either skip over it. And get to the fun thing about Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. We'll be there next week. Because that's really interesting. There's, there's family stuff. We like family. But the easy thing to do is to skip it or to just do what the modern scholars do and say, this is not really part of the Bible. It was kind of added in later, and we don't know why it's here. So just skip over it. We're not doing that. We think that this actually is beneficial for us somehow. So how is it? I think first... As we look even at the S word, we have to look and realize this is the experience of God's people long ago. It's ancient history, yes. It's ancient history, yes. It's a weird thing that happens, yes. But we have to be convinced, we have to be convinced that their God is our God. And that's why you even open up the Bible. The only reason you open up the Bible is if you actually believe that This Jesus is your Jesus, and this God, their God, is our God. So with that conviction in play, let's let's go and let's look and see how this helps us actually reassess our own society. I mean, first things first, there's a bit of a shock here. If you listened, if you read through it, there's a bit of a shock because it seems like Joseph, the good man of God, the godly guy who's not given into temptation, who's been wise, who's been prudent, who's cared for and fed the whole world. It seems like as you read through this section, he's behaving badly. Did you get that as we read through it? Let me kind of tease it out for you. As we read, he can come across as a cruel guy. He'd come across as very unscrupulous. We're told, verse 13, look there. We're told there's no food in the land. There's no food in all the land. We're told the famine was very severe. We've heard about this famine. We've heard about it a lot. Everything depends on Joseph. And we see here what Joseph does. Verse 14. People don't have food. Recall that Joseph has stored up grain in these huge silos. He's been smart. He's been prepared. He has food for them. So what do they do? The Egyptian common man, the average guy, the working class stiff Egyptian, what do they have to do? They take their savings because they the crop's awful that year. They take their savings and they have to go buy food from Joseph. 
And so year one, what does Joseph do? He says, yeah, give me your money. I'll give you the grain. They lose their money. Now, some Christians even here say, yeah, they were stupid. If only they'd saved more. If only they'd been smart, prudent, good Scotsmen. Or Dutch or just Presbyterian in general. They would have saved more. They needed more Dave Ramsey in their life. If only they had a little more of Dave Ramsey, everything would be great. Now, as wise as it is to save, we're not talking about ordinary economic issues here. This is great depression-level disaster. I mean, all parents, grandparents who lived the Depression, they would tell you stories of what it was like. No amount of wise saving, no amount of financial prudence would keep you from losing everything in a day or a week or a month. All savings wiped out. And so what does Joseph do? Verse 14, he gives, he takes their money. He takes their money, he gives them food. It's a cash transaction. They are hoping and gambling and betting that in year two, no more famine. But of course, year two rolls around. Verse 15, next year, all the Egyptians come to Joseph. They say, give us food. Why should we die before their eyes? We don't have money. What can we do? Well, what assets do they have? They have livestock. Now, livestock for a farmer, you can ask Jim about this if you want to. Livestock for the farmer is a more of a long-term investment. You want to keep them around because they keep producing. It's a long, a medium-term uh, uh, prospect. But if you have to have food, you can, you, can have, you, can, you can give them up. If you have to survive in the short term, you can sell them or kill them. And so what do they have to do? Year two, verse 16, verse 17, they give them their livestock. They, they barter away some of their assets. That's not great, but they still have the land. They're hoping and pleading that year three, there won't be a bad harvest. But what happened in year three? Verse 18, famine's uh, still there. No food. They're hoping beyond hope. Doesn't work out. No money, no animals. So what do they say? Verse 19, again, they tell Joseph, why should we die? Why should our land die? Buy us. They sell themselves into slavery. We and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. And don't, don't fall for the ESV here, the common translation of servants. I mean, that's a polite way. You can say servants, it's not a big deal, but the, the term here is actually slave. It's, a, it's, a, it's the word used. They voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. And what does Joseph do? He says, Yes, all right. He buys it all up for Pharaoh, his, his boss. He buys all the land. He says, Okay. Let's do it. And, and then what does he do? Verse, verse 26, he says, all right, here, here's a new tax law. Here's a new, here's a new law. 20% tax rate. Everything to Pharaoh. How does that strike you? If you've been with us for a time, you know Joseph. You know your Bible stories. You know he's a godly man. You know he's a wise man. And then you have this episode. It seems difficult to defend this guy. He looks like he is heartlessly exploiting economic depression and famine to take advantage of the poor and the destitute, enslaving them. He's literally, in fact, the, the word here, the Hebrew in uh, verse 14, that gathering up the money, literally it's scraping the bottom of the barrel to get all the pennies you can. He was taking everything out, every last cent in Egypt. And by the end of the famine, by the end of the story, the entire country, except for the privileged priest, belonged to Pharaoh. What would you think of a politician who did this today? A hurricane comes through and, and the, the, the politician says, oh, you want, you want social services? You, you want help? Yeah, you got to pony up. 
You got to pay up. Is he exploiting a natural disaster? Is he behaving badly? Now, of course, as readers of the Bible, we don't have to defend every Bible character by no means. We don't. There are plenty of examples of folks in the Bible, just like you and me, who do behave badly. The Bible is not a whitewashing, a propaganda piece on its saints. It tells us the faults and the virtues. And so maybe this was Joseph's one blind spot. This was his Achilles heel. Godly man, just unscrupulous politician. He gets a little bit corrupted by power. His hands are dirty. And of course, this is a method I don't think we need the Bible to tell us. I think you kind of know that already. But I actually don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think Joseph is at fault here. We make a huge mistake trying to judge him through our 21st century Western eyes. Instead, look at Joseph as he was in his own day, not in our politically correct day. First, we read, the famine is very severe. There's no food. What does that mean? Picture it. Picture it. If you want to actually see what this is like, picture it. You have kids who are emaciated, who are walking down to Egypt. They're starving kids. They're emaciated, but their bellies are bloated. Because they're malnourished. They're begging for food. And in those conditions, people don't have time to speculate about political theory. They don't have to analyze the ideal form of a nation. They just want to get food. They're starving to death. And then we get to this word, the S word, the slave word. For us, of course, the the S word has a horrible impact. We think of cattle slavery. We think of the African slave trade, racism. Human beings packed into ships in horrific conditions, whips and hatred, chained up, branded, sold to cotton fields and sugar plantations across America, and death, the constant companion. That's what we think of. But when we come to the Bible, we come to a different type of slavery. Even as you see it in these words, even as you see it here, what do you see here? It's much more like signing a contract to work a set number of years. Notice that the folks go to Joseph. Verse 15, they ask him, they want to be enslaved. That's not the picture of the antebellum South. They want to be enslaved. This is more like, if you want a a connection, an analogy, it's more like the Middle Ages and feudalism, where lords ruled and serfs served. And whatever you think of that system, it, it did, at least was stable for centuries. Moreover, the ancient world had no concept of a free lunch. They had no concept of getting something for nothing. People expected that they would have to sell themselves, their kids, their land, their animals. It was taken for granted. In fact, in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, God provides for this type of service. When a Jew falls into debt, they can't pay their debts off. There's no bankruptcy. There's no chapter 11. What they had to do was to go into servitude. They lost many of their rights. They had to work off their debt. They had to go do that. You see, in fact, what Joseph is doing is not exploitation, it's charity, it's kindness. It's interesting because the law of Moses also tells us that there were many slaves, many Jewish slaves. When the time comes and they could be free, they say no. It provides for it. Why would they say why would a slave say no to freedom? That's almost incomprehensible unless you've been brainwashed, we think. How would they say no to their, to their freedom? Because freedom in those days meant you had to be self-reliant. It's kind of the difference between working for a company with a 
pension plan, with retirement, with health insurance, with benefits, versus being self-employed. You got to rely on yourself. If you get hurt, if you're if you get a dis- there's no disability insurance. There's no uh, uh, state-sponsored health plans for you in those days. If you were not a slave, you were free. You had freedom, and yet you had to provide for yourself. That's why Exodus 21:5 includes this comment: If a servant declares, "I love my master and don't want to go free," and we say, "Why on earth would any human being want to remain a slave?" But think about it. To be a slave meant financial security in an uncertain world. There's no charity. There's no Red Cross. There's no Social Security. There's no government assistance. There's no alimony. There's no disability payment. Nobody cared if you died by yourself. But if you were a slave in those times, you had work, you had food, you had clothes, you had a home. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to whitewash you. I'm just telling you what the facts were. Somebody could provide for you and your family. And so in a part of a world where there was a famine, Joseph wisely kindly sets up a system so the entire population could be fed. And if you need the the clinching argument in my mind is right here in verse 25. If you need evidence, if you want me to prove it to you, listen to what they say. Verse 25, after all is said and done, they come to Joseph. They say to him, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord will be slaves to Pharaoh. You have saved our lives. That's them talking. Joseph, we were going to die. You gave us life. We must not make the arrogant mistake of anachronism, of reading our modern individualistic Western secular eyes onto this text. Joseph is acting like the savior of Egypt. He delivers them. He brings them through famine. You see, the critics of the Bible, they they read this story and they say, yeah, that's religion. I knew it. This is what Christians always want. That's the Bible. You exploit the weak. You enslave them. No sense of human rights. I don't like this religious thing. I knew it. This is what God brings you. But that's not what the people, the non-Jewish people, note that. That's not what the pagan people back then thought. Don't arrogantly sideline dead people. They said, Joseph, you've saved us. Now, the critics will also tell you this is unfair enslavement. Is it really? Look around in our world. Is our method of relieving famine today any better than Joseph's method. If you're a more conservative-minded person, you know the flaws in state-sponsored relief programs. You look at the state and the government helping, you see all the, all the problems with that. If you're more of a liberal person, you look at the flaws and kind of big business-sponsored programs where they use the money to enrich themselves. And on both sides, both arguments are correct. We have plenty of issues today. Walmart is probably not super interested in you being healthy it's super interested in your money. And the same may very well be true of the government. I'm not here to be a political scientist. I'm simply to say that, ask the question, are we that much more humane as we sit in our Western comfort and affluence? We are the wealthiest generation in the history of the world ever. And yet tens of thousands of people across the world are dying of starvation. And many in this very county, in the counties of South, South Atlanta, many have food. But what kind of food do they have? I've mentioned before the, the food desert concept where you have food available, but it's all junk food. It's all Circle K. It's all gas station food. It's all Walmart food. Do you realize the luxury you have if you, I know many, many folks are uh, all big into chickens these days. 
all big into uh, getting your own stuff thing. So that's a luxury. I'm gr- that's great if you have it, but it, it takes time and money to, to, to work in it. Or if you're more of a high-class person, you have the luxury of shopping at organic foods or going to a farmer's market, or you know somebody who can afford to get you the good quality supplies. If that's you, God bless you in that. That's a luxury. Many people don't have the connections. They don't have the cash. They don't have the time. If you went to the trailer parks around here, if you went to the starvation camps around the world and you were to ask if you can get a full, hearty belly every day for 20% income tax, would you take it? I think for some of us, actually, 20% income tax would be great. We take that you know, here, here and now. Because that's the actual result, you notice? That's the result here. Pharaoh takes one-fifth, verse 26. He takes one-fifth of the produce. Joseph saves their lives. This is slavery in the ancient world. Slavery is 80% of your own land. You get to keep the profits. Again, many of us wish the tax rate is 20%. Is that extortion? Well, I mean, we can compare it to other ancient world kings. Most ancient world kings, most Babylonians, Assyrians, and the like, the usual tax rate was one-third. Some places, 50%. In wartime, whew, you'd be lucky if it's less than two-thirds of your income taken away. Joseph is letting the people off lightly. I'm no expert in the tax brackets today, but I believe many folks uh, fall at least in 24%, if not higher, not to mention Social Security. Oh, but, but they weren't free. The second objection, well, okay, maybe that money stuff is okay, but they weren't free people. We're Americans. We love our freedom. They weren't free under Joseph. How free are you? Can you wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what? I'm just going to sleep in the day. I'm just going to sleep in all day long. You got to go to work, don't you? You need to stay at work until quitting time. And you got to do that for most days of the week if you want food. You see, Joseph took away their freedom for food. Our jobs take away our freedom for food. Our absolute freedom. What about all the other restrictions on your life? If you're not healthy, well, you got to go to doctors. You're not free. You got to get a car. You got to drive a car around. You're not free. You got to commute every day. You're not free. And if you have the luxury of being self employed these days, and I speak from personal experience as a pastor, I don't need to get into all the details, but you got to be a bookkeeper. You got to be an accountant to figure out all the regulations. Now, this is not saying that we should go back to ancient Egypt. I'm not saying that. I love indoor plumbing. I hope you do too. I love central heating in the winter months. I hope you do too. But don't let today's perspective brainwash us into judging the scriptural world untruthfully. We are not as free as we think. Are you free to say whatever pops into your mind? Technically, you are. We live in a land where there's freedom of speech, but these days, perhaps less and less. So how free are you? I guess the reality is that our chains today are invisible. We live in a world where we are invisibly chained. We're not nearly as free as like to believe. Because the nature of sin is to disguise your chains. Fluffy and comfortable, benign seemingly. But we are slaves nonetheless. The S word. Secondly, the B word. S word, slavery. Secondly, B word, blessing. Another word that gets really confused in our modern lingo. But we see here, three folks get blessed. Three different types of blessing. First, we saw this last week, very briefly, Pharaoh gets blessed. Pharaoh gets blessed. We get the details. Remember Jacob goes to Pharaoh 
verse 7 to verse, verse 10, there's this interview and Jacob weirdly blesses Pharaoh. Jacob, the puny guy, the old guy, blessing the mighty man of the whole universe, Pharaoh, the, the son of the sun god, Ra. And only the great guy blesses the lesser guy in Bible terms. So how could Jacob do that? Because Jacob is representing God and his people. And Pharaoh understood it. Pharaoh allowed the blessing of Jacob to fall on him. And here is the result. The result is that Pharaoh gets land. He gets livestock. He gets power. He gets dominion. So what does that mean for you? Friends, this is the purpose for Christians living in the world. As we mentioned last week, just very briefly, I don't have time to make a lot of application here. You can make it yourself. The purpose of the church in the world is to bless the world, to bless Pharaoh. Israel does not ignore Egypt. We are to spread blessing. We are blessed, like Jacob, to bless Pharaohs, to bless neighbors, to bless others. Second, kind of rolling it back a bit, we see here that the people of God get blessed. You know, as you read the passage beginning in verse 27, I'll just read it briefly. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. What, what happened to them? They gained possession of it. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. That verse right there tells you a total contrast. The Egyptians, they don't have food. They don't have their own land. They've lost possession of their land. They're not multiplying. Great. They're not fruitful. There's a huge contrast here between the people of the world and the people of God. Between the, the Egyptians and the Israelites, they're in a famine. Both sides are in a famine. But one side prospers. One side multiplies. One side grows. And the church, the people of God, Israel, the nation, they are prospering in awful circumstances. They're prospering not just in a famine, but in the pagan land, in Egypt, the worst place to be on earth. As I mentioned last week, it's like the church prospering in communist China. How are they doing it? Is it because they have some, some secret corner on the market? Did they kind of buy up all the grain? No, they didn't. No, they're not price gouging. They prospered because God blessed them. God promised, I will bless you. I will multiply you. He did it with Abraham. He promised it to Jacob. And now he's showing it in the life of Israel. The point is this, friends. Neither geography nor catastrophe can stop God's commitment to his own people. As Christ says, surely I am with you always. And the message for you is very clear this week. You need to know as a Christian, you can prosper in any situation. That doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy. That doesn't mean you're going to have, you know, kids out the wazoo. That doesn't mean you're going to be a great guy, a great gal. But no matter how severe the life may be, no matter how corrupt your pals may be, you can grow no matter how threatening the winds of today are. We are to be cheerful and confident, not pessimistic or frightened. Israel goes down to Egypt in a famine, the worst possible scenario, awful situation. Despite that, who prospers? They do. They prosper. In fact, if you look at the numbers, they go down as 70 people. They come back up in the Exodus, 2 million people. They multiply faster, the nation of Israel, faster than any other time in the Old Testament. When all looked against God's people. They multiply. And in case you think that's a weird path, that's a one-off statistical anomaly, the same thing happened in the New Testament with the church. The same thing happened in the New Testament with the church. Twelve. Twelve. The twelve. Thousands on Pentecost. And as the church spreads, how does it spread? It spreads through death. Martyrdom. 
The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You know, in the year 1948 in, in China, there were about 70,000 Christians in the whole country, mostly missionaries. And then under Mao and the communists, they expelled the missionaries and savagely persecuted the church for 40 years. 40 years of state-sponsored, targeted persecution of Christians. How many Chinese are Christian today? Estimated, just conservative estimate, over 20 million. Conservative estimate, maybe far more. That's an increase, if you do the math, of over 50 times in 70 years. God blesses his church. And God may have to make your life far less comfy, far less happy, far less careless. But if he does, you have this promise. I will be with you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you trust in that promise? I suppose the, the last guy who gets blessed here is really the most remarkable. The last guy who gets blessed here is Jacob. This is the last uh, few verses here, verse 29 and verse 31. This little story about Jacob, he, he's getting old. He's 147 years old. The time draws near that he has to die. What comfort in that, in, in, in those words, the time. The time drew near. You know what that means? God had appointed for Jacob a time. It was the time for him. And do you know that for you, for every one of God's children, he has appointed a time to take you from this earth to be with himself. You never die before your time. We, we think, don't we, in our day of medical technology, we, we think that we control death. You don't control death. Nobody controls death. God controls. God controls your life. It may seem that somebody dies before their time. We might wish that they had lived longer on earth. But that's God's prerogative. Not ours. The great Scotsman Robert Candlish writes this, commenting on this text. He says, you have Israel's among you. You have older saints among you. The, <clears throat> the time is coming near for them to die. Don't make too much of your Israel's. The time is coming. But don't make too little of them either. Honor them. Love them. The time is coming when you won't have them any longer. And so you read here that J Jacob says, don't bury me in Egypt. Don't bury me in Egypt. He says, I don't belong in Egypt. I belong in a better country. <clears throat> we have property here. We have good life in Egypt. But take me out of here. Bury me with my daddy and my granddad, with Isaac, with Abraham. He wants them to settle in the promised land. He leans himself on his staff. And he worships. He reminds Joseph of his destiny. If you're... If you're an older Christian, do you know one of the chief ministries you have right now? One of the chief opportunities you have is not just to prep yourself for heaven. We tend to be selfish people, whether you're young or old. So we focus on ourselves. I need to prep myself for, for dying and for heaven. That's, that's certainly good. But one of the chief ways older Christians can serve others is to point others to heaven. Point people to heaven. Point future generations to heaven. Point children, grandchildren, friends, church. Show them the glory of heaven by your life and your witness. Like Jacob here. Pointing Joseph. Not, don't bury me here. Bury me in Israel. Do you see the ministry you have? So, two themes, two words. S word, B word. Slavery. 
and blessing. Those are the two, the hidden cello of slavery, the hard-to-hear clarinet of blessing. But what does it all mean for us? What does it all mean for us? How are we to live in light of this text? You know, some saints would tell us, that some Christians would tell us that Jesus comes as a revolutionary. He comes in his gospel and he blows up the system. He breaks all the chains. He brings us to be a, a people who are totally free for freedom. And they will quote Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And as Americans, if I had to gamble, not that I would, not that you should, not that I should, but if I had to gamble on your number three top theme you love, it's not just family, it's not just marriage, it's freedom. It's freedom. I'm a Christian, I'm free. I have liberty. I could do what I want to. God won't care. He loves me. I'm eternally secure in him. I'm free. Because I'm his child. Because I'm his bride. That's a nice little packet, isn't it? But the New Testament tells us over and over and over again until it's blue in the face that the gospel is not simply freedom from sin. But Jesus Christ enslaves you. That's a very hard thing for us to grasp. It's a very hard thing for us to grasp that Christ calls you a slave. Very unpopular. Very, I'm not saying it's easy to get your mind around, but unashamedly, without reservation, we are called slaves of Christ. We are told that we have the spirit of adoption of sons so that we might know this is Romans. Of course, you know this, this is Romans, Paul. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer to give up our, our members, our, ourselves, a slave to sin, but we're to be slaves to righteousness. I guess the real question for us, as we consider this great S theme, is the fact that we don't really trust Jesus. We call him Lord. We don't actually believe he's Lord. We call him Savior, and we love that because he saved us from our sin, and now I'm free. But Lord, no, 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 no. We call him Lord. We call him Master. But the real question is we don't know and we don't want to trust what kind of master Jesus is because every other master we've gone to has been awful. Is Jesus just one, one more in the long list of exploiters? I think the best answer to that is to look at the law of Jubilee. You can go a lot of places here, but the law of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. You see, when Israel came, when they come out of Egypt, they go in the promised land. You can read in the Old Testament, the land was divvied up. There were divisions by the clans and the tribes. Every family, they got an equal amount of land. And as the years go by, as you live, what happens? Some families are smart. Some families are stupid. Some people do better. Some people do worse. Some people, partly through good planning, partly through circumstances, partly through hard work, some people do better. They make good investments. Their land grows. Other people, they're stupid. They get in debt. They do worse. They lose their land. Or like here, they sell their land off, right? And God said in his land, in Israel, in the promised land, what's his economic system? Every 50 years, no matter what happened, all the land goes back to the original owners. What this meant, actually, is that the commentators tell us that on average, once a lifetime, you had a reset. On average, once a lifetime, every family, every person had a chance starting anew, no matter how irresponsible they had been in their money, no matter how far into debt they had fallen. I mean, can you imagine living that life in America? <laughs> can you imagine your life if every 50 years, well, you go back to the way it was with your daddy? It was such a radical idea that most scholars tell us the Jews never actually practiced it. 
Every 50 years, debts paid. Every 50 years, slaves go free. Why did God do that? He did it to show you the kind of master he is, the kind of Lord he is. He says, I own the land. I am the author of all your wealth. And we as good free Americans, we say, no, I I did it by my work. I did it by my hard efforts. I'm a free man. I'm a free American woman. I worked hard. I planned well. Me. And God says, no, not you and me. Not you and me. My property. Mine. I am the author of it all. And in my country, there's no permanent poverty. But what's fascinating is that Jesus Christ actually deliberately takes that up in the Gospels. He takes that up. He says, I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what he says when he gets up to preach at the synagogue. I proclaim the year. Notice he, he says actually in, in, in Matthew and in Luke, the year, not a year, not a jubilee. He says, I proclaim the jubilee. What is Jesus Christ saying? He's saying, I'm the jubilee. I will bring you the full rest that all of the Old Testament's pointing to you. I will be your master, but as your master, I bind your heart to mine with love. I'm the Jubilee. I take all your debts on me. I take all your failure on me. I take all your sins on me. I am the Jubilee. We see that really, don't we, in, in that awkward thing that, People at church that pastors especially don't like to talk about. We see that awkward thing called giving. The, the tax here under Pharaoh is what? One-fifth, 20%. What's the religious tax under Moses? It's way better, isn't it? It's half, 10%, the tithe. What's the tax rate in the New Testament? What's the New Testament tax rate? Love. Love. The going rate's love. Isn't this what Paul says? We talked about it in, in, in the letter to the Corinthians. Second one. He says, you must give without compulsion. You must give generously. You must give freely. In view of the fact that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor, so that in him you might have all the riches of the world. We are so conditioned, friends, to believe that grace is bought and sold in the free market of the soul. We are so conditioned to believe that we still want to push a tax bracket in the church. But as Paul says in Romans, you think you can make God your debtor? You, you Try that game. You think you can make God owe you? Come on, sit now. You can't make him owe you. You're not going to work hard to get yourself out of debt. You see, Jesus Christ is your master. You are his slave. But what kind of a master is he? He is the master who binds you with the strings of love. It is the beautiful paradox of the Christian gospel. You are free, free to give out of love to God, out of love to the brethren, but you are only free in Jesus Christ. You are only free because you are bought by his very blood. So you are slaves of Christ, which returns us to the very question we must answer. What kind of king is King Jesus? What kind of Lord is he? What kind of master is he? I've mentioned this before, but uh, you probably forgot it. So I'll do it again. It's been a, a couple of years. 
No better way to put it than the, the lyrics of the, the live album by the Christian artist Sarah Groves, maybe 15, almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago now. She sings it. She says this, I'm compelled. I'm compelled. She's speaking to God. You know, you compel me. I'm compelled. And of all the masters I have known, you are the kindest. And of all the masters I have known, you're the only one who's making me free. And in view of your mercy, I'm compelled. She hits on so many truths that we, we, we forget. Of all the masters I have known, do you know that you realize that you're a slave to somebody? Dylan tells you that. You have to serve somebody. You will serve somebody. You will be enslaved to something, whether it's your good impression or others' good impression or your beauty or your strength or your hard work or your, or your cash or your family or you're going to church or you're praying or your quiet time or the fact that you're, you really are a good person on the inside that people just knew. You'll be a slave. You're a slave. That's what, that's what slavery is. That's what sin does. Sin is slavery. And Jesus Christ enslaves you. But he's the only kind of master who is actually freeing you from all the other ones. He is the only kind of master whose chains are bonds of love. And yes, I admit, his chains are bloody. They are bloody chains. But whose blood's on them? His blood. He gave his life. This is not some master who's high on the hog, who's taking advantage of your work and saying, yeah, keep working, Christian. This is the one who's gone down and gotten dirty. This is the one who's given up his very life. And yet he is our Lord. I mean, what, what, could the, what, what else could the word Lord mean? It's not some polite phrase. It's not, oh, yes, sir. He enslaves you, but he never exploits you. His chains are firm, but they're the chains of love. He is the only master who frees you from slavery to self, slavery to sin, slavery to Satan. And he gives you freedom. It's the freedom of the cross. It's the freedom to give yourself up and do something so radical that the world cannot even imagine it. He brings that year of jubilee to free you from your debt, your failure. You're ruining your life. And unlike the year of jubilee, he doesn't just put you back in the same spot and say, try, try harder. He gives you his own righteousness. He gives you his own obedience. He says, all that I have is yours. That's the kind of master he is. He gives you the run of the house. He, he gives you the penthouse. He doesn't take the master bedroom. He, he gives it to you. He says, what's mine is yours. Mi casa es su casa. And because of that, you're my slave. We love because he first loved us. Do you know you're a slave? Do you know the blessing you have as a slave of Christ? Live out of that, friends. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you confessing that your power is greater than ours, and yet your love is greater than ours. We thank you that you, even though we see here in picture with Joseph, you deliver us, you save our lives. And that, Lord, in your kingdom, what we are to give is our love to you because of what you've given for us. You've bought us, O oh Lord. And Lord, though we're in hock to you, it's not a hock that we can pay off, not a debt that we can pay off. But Lord, it's a bond of love that you give to us. Give us that strength to love you and serve you. Be your slaves this week, this day, this hour. As you bless us with amazing grace.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.